Stephanie Dre has found her sweet spot, telling the stories of America's forgotten women, in quotes. And her latest blockbuster, The Women of Chateau Lafayette, is no exception. It's a rollicking historical saga reaching across three centuries, from the French Revolution to the Second World War. Welcome to the joys of binge reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series. So you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and in Binge Reading Today, Stephanie Dre talks about one of the most anticipated historical novels of 2021 and the French-American alliance that has saved the world three times. Winston Churchill might be turning over on his grave hearing me make that statement. We've got three ebook copies of Stephanie's book, The Women of Chateau Lafayette, to give away to three lucky readers in our Royal House giveaway. Enter the draw on the Joys of Binge Reading website or look for it on our Facebook page. And just a reminder, if you enjoy this podcast, you can get lots more exclusive bonus content, including hearing Stephanie answer our getting to know you quick fire questions, just for the equivalent of a cup of coffee a month. Check it out on patreon.com forward slash the joys of binge reading. But now here's Stephanie. Hello there, Stephanie, and welcome to the show. It's so good to have you with us. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Look, you're a USA Today best-selling author specializing in historic fiction. You do do some great books co-authoring, but this one is entirely your own work. The latest one, The Women of the Chateau Lafayette. It's got a lot of true history in it. It's about an extraordinary castle in the heart of France and three generations of women spread from the years of the French Revolution to the Second World War. It's a wonderful, it's a historic saga what got you started on it? Well, um, and thank you for saying that it's a wonderful saga because it felt like it even while writing it. I started it because I had been writing about American founding mothers for a couple of novels. I've written America's First Daughter with my very dear friend and co-author, Laura Kamoy. And we also wrote My Dear Hamilton, which is about Eliza Schuyler Hamilton, the wife of America's first secretary of the treasury, Alexandra Hamilton, who is now also a Broadway star. I'm not sure if Hamilton has reached Australia, but it's still going strong here. Look, it's a terrible thing. It's one of my ambitions in life to see Hamilton. And I I did interview Laura about the book 18 months or so ago, and I resolved that somehow or other I was going to go and see Hamilton. I didn't know much about Alexander Hamilton before I read that book, and I loved that book too. And then I discovered it was coming to Sydney, so I thought, fantastic. I put my name down for, you know, all the advance notice of pre-sales for Sydney. And then... What happened early last year? COVID struck. Oh, no. Well, okay. Well, I hope you get to see it after we're out of the woods with this pandemic because it's it's really fun. It's really worthwhile. And it was really a big inspiration for Laura and I. And really the other inspiration in writing those books about American founding mothers is that we discovered a Frenchman, Lafayette, 
who was an American founding father that people don't often think of as being quite as important and necessary to American independence as he was. But he was also a very colorful character and he was very kind to the women that I had been writing about. And that's when I discovered that he had an amazing wife and an amazing love story. Very seldom do we have historic love stories that transcend the ages and just really inspire and speak to us. This was one of them. And when I discovered their story, I couldn't wait to introduce readers to Adrienne Lafayette and her remarkable story of courage. But then the story expanded. Shall I explain how or are you going to talk yes, to me? Yes, do. No, please do. <laughs> so I had discovered while writing about Adrienne that the castle that she was a mistress of and that Lafayette was born in It's a little castle in Auvergne. It's in the mountains, very far away from anything. It served as a shelter for more than 25,000 children at first during World War I, again during World War II. Importantly, it was a refuge for Jewish children during the Holocaust. And I thought the Lafayettes and their amazing humanitarian legacy, they would be over the moon to know that their house was used in this beautiful way. And I had to know how on earth that happened. And so I wanted to know who bought this house in France. I knew it was an American woman and I discovered her name was Beatrice Chandler. And that's when I thought to myself, I know that name, Beatrice Chandler, that's very familiar. And when I looked up at my bookshelf, I saw that I had a book by Beatrice Chandler. And I thought that cannot possibly be the same woman, but I took the book down and it was the same woman. And even more remarkably, the book in question was a biography of Cleopatra Selene, which is the biography that started my writing career because my very first books were about Cleopatra's daughter. Lily of the Nile is the first one. And I thought, oh my God, this woman has been sitting on my bookshelf all these years waiting for me to discover the real story is her. She is an amazing person and she carried on the Lafayette legacy. It just was so remarkable. And at that point, I knew that this book wasn't just about people who were living. It was about the impression they leave behind, the good that they do in the world. And this was a very special place that served as a beacon of hope in three of history's darkest hours. So that's what the book became. That's just wonderful. And it it was dubbed before anybody hardly even read it as one of the most anticipated novels of 2021. And I wonder what kind of extra pressure that puts on you as an author when you're seeing your book flagged that way before you've even had a chance for anyone much to see it. Did it make you feel as if, oh my gosh, what? how am I going to do this? I am a nervous Nelly. So yes, I thought to myself, This is my first solo title in a long time, so that made me nervous. I also knew that this was a story that was more complicated than anything I told before. It was a story that was going to be told in three different time periods about three different women who all lived in this one house. And I 
I thought I worried really that my readers wouldn't like it. So I lost many nights of sleep. I was definitely under a lot of pressure and I'm just really grateful for everyone who has loved it and told their friends all about it. Now, for those who don't know quite so much about American history, and I think probably there's quite a few Americans even who don't know much about what Lafayette did, we'll just perhaps backtrack a bit. The first generation of your story, Adrienne, as you've mentioned, she's an aristocrat. She marries the young Lafayette. I think her family has far more status than his at the beginning. He's Marquis. He goes to America to help the colonies fight Britain because he's got this passionate burning sense of wanting to help free men, that kind of thing that was happening in the 18th century. Could you briefly summarise for us the key part that he did play in that initial battle, the Americans freeing themselves from the British king? Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons that I think Lafayette is so important, not just to Americans, but to the world, is that I think he was the key figure in creating Western democracies. He is the Enlightenment figure that actually takes all that philosophical premise that was happening in France and ends up translating it broadly into real action. He came to the United States at the age of 19 against the wishes of the French king to fight in George Washington's army. And I know that, you know, not every, we tend to over-idealize the American founding but for someone like Lafayette, from his perspective, it truly was a world-changing event. He wanted it to spur a worldwide movement towards democracy and away from monarchy. And that's what he did. He was only 19 and he was a great general. I couldn't even balance my checkbook when I was 19. <laughs> so I'm always amazed that he did this and that he held to his principles even when people around him were less idealistic or more cynical or more corrupted uh, by the whole process. Now, he, in his first battle, I believe he was wounded at the Battle of the Brandywine. Don't hold me to that being his first battle, but if it wasn't the first, it was shortly thereafter. It was a flesh wound, so he, he escaped handily. But ultimately, he became such um, an important military figure in George Washington's retinue that he really was the one who trapped Cornwallis at Yorktown and helped lead to the American victory there. So he was really an instrumental factor. I, and I don't want to get into the weeds about the American Revolution, but originally the big battle was supposed to be in New York. And it was Lafayette who encouraged George Washington and his aides to reconsider and to come down to Virginia to fight that final battle where he had Cornwallis cornered. And Cornwallis was sort of contemptuous of Lafayette. He would call him the boy. So it was, I'm sure, very satisfying for Lafayette on every level when that became the resounding victory that it was. And with his connections back with the French court, he was also very useful in an international political sense, wasn't he? Yes. I mean, I, I honestly think that the French and American alliance would not have happened without Lafayette. It was his influence, yeah. his, his sort of stardom, because he became very famous in France once he went on this escapade, he defied the king, he became a hero, sort of captured the popular imagination, and that put a lot of pressure on the royals. The, and of course, his wife helped 
achieve this alliance with France. And I like to say that the Franco-American alliance saved the world three times over. We had a lot of help from Australians, but I, <laughs> I do think <laughs> that the French-American alliance was pivotal to the development of Western democracy, and none of that could have happened without Lafayette or his wife. Yes, although Winston Churchill might think that it was also a, a British-American alliance, but <laughs> we'll let that go. But being a, one of the colonies... <laughs> Well, sure, you know, we have to give Sir Winston his due. Um, so Lafayette, he's a hero in America. He goes back to his wife in France. He has quite a few years, they have quite a few years where they're apart while he's off fighting and she's holding, keeping the home fires burning. And But then they come back to the revolution, both of them fired up with this vision about freeing men and having democracy and then sadly, we all know how the, the French Revolution ended with a lot of violence and the execution of the king. Not only the king, though, the revolution turns against him ultimately, doesn't it? And he barely escapes beheading himself. And it's the, his wife who saves him in this dreadful period of their lives, isn't it? Yes. I, I love the French Revolution because it's so complicated. And I remember when, when I was in France... I was trying to figure out when the actual end of the revolution was. And a Frenchman told me, you mean it's over? Because they <laughs> looked at it as sort of this ongoing process. But the beginning, of course, was really bloody and messy. And even though Adrian and Lafayette were at the forefront of, of the exciting idealistic period, the revolution does turn against them and he ends up in prison. And I must say that being able to write about a heroine who actually saves the life of the hero was something really new and novel. And I just admire her so much. I would never have the courage to do what she did, to go into prison with her husband and save his life. That was just an amazing story. And I couldn't wait to tell it. Yes, yes. Now, at the moment, you've got quite a remarkable campaign going to get more national recognition for Lafayette in America. Tell us about that. You've got a, a thing online where people can go and see the states that have already signed up to support it. Tell us about this um, vision you've got going. So this is not my project. It's officially Julian Icker's project. It's the Lafayette Trail project. I am a member of the American Friends of Lafayette organization. And so I am trying to get a Lafayette Day recognized in my state, in part because it's something that my second heroine, Beatrice Chandler, always wanted to do. She was really trying to push for a national Lafayette Day so that Americans would understand the significance of his heroism in our war, but more importantly, the influence of his legacy on America's role in the world and the battles that we chose to fight. And is, so is there a date in mind? Do you have a date in mind? I would like to do it on his birthday, but there are other dates under consideration. So we're hoping that the Maryland legislature will take up the issue in this coming session, but they were a little busy with the pandemic last year. Yeah, so I imagine everything's been shunted a bit aside. So at the moment, how many states are there that have at least registered interest? How far has this idea got wings at the moment? Well, I'm not sure how many states are. I'm, I'm only focusing on Maryland, so um, okay. I'm not yeah. sure yeah. about that. <laughs> and then Beatrice, 
Chandler. She's another contradiction in a way because she's a glittering American socialite. She's got really no reason to even be in France. She could be back in New York drinking champagne and dancing in jazz clubs. But she goes to France and during the First World War, she takes amazing risks and she, you know, does some amazing things, including working in in the field with ambulances, I think, at one stage. Tell us about Beatrice. So Beatrice was one of about 100,000 Americans who were originally trapped in Europe at the start of World War I because all of the ships were commissioned at the sort of sudden outbreak of war. She was trapped there for a few months and what she saw really affected her and she decided that she had to do something about this war. She was kind of, I mean, I always laugh when I see that she's like, well, someone has to do something. And she decides, well, if someone has to do something, it might as well be her. And that sort of goes with Lafayette's motto, which is, why not? And I always think he's saying, why not you? Why not me? Why is it somebody else's job to take care of the problems in the world? And Beatrice really embodied that uh, motto. So she went home, she started a charity called the Lafayette Fund. They rose, they raised an incredible amount of money to buy ambulances and supplies for the French soldiers in the trenches. And then she returned to France, as you mentioned, as a war relief worker. In fact, she crossed the ocean. I counted seven times. It must have been eight, but I was able to document at least seven. And she traveled across a mine-laden ocean more than any other relief worker. So she was eventually decorated for that heroism by France. And I think that she really liked that honor. That was probably a nice feather plume for her hat. How did the connection with Lafayette happen there? Why did she call it the Lafayette Fund? We don't have documentation of why, but it's clear that she was interested in Lafayette even before the outbreak of the war. She made a very natural assumption that because Lafayette and Adrian had helped equip American soldiers during the revolution and gave them clothing and shoes and and supplies, that it would appeal to American sense of beholding that we owed a debt to France. And so she was able to fundraise on his name. And she did a lot of wacky things like throwing a, a children's play to sort of make Americans remember why Lafayette was so important to them. But I have a theory about why Beatrice really was always interested in Lafayette. And that is because even though she was a glittering socialite and she was married to a millionaire, she had a family secret. I am not going to tell you who she was, but I am going to say that her upbringing was quite challenging. I think she was the American dream that Lafayette wanted to bring into being. And her house, her childhood house, was very close to Lafayette Park in Boston. And I I like to think that as a child, she must have looked at those statues and it stuck with her. It was something that she thought about because she dedicated herself to Lafayette's memory for the rest of her life. And then amazingly, your next heroine, the third one in the story, In the Second World War, she too has amazing connections with the Lafayette legacy, doesn't she? Tell us about her. So I should start by mentioning that the third heroine in my story is a composite character 
of a number of real women at the Chateau who did amazingly heroic things during the Holocaust. We know, for example, that there was a French school teacher at the Chateau who helped the French resistance stay in hiding. Unfortunately, the French resistance didn't name who this woman and this school teacher was. So I knew that things like that happened at the Chateau, but I didn't have a name to attach to them. And we have some similar instances of artists who were forgers in the area. And we know for a fact that Jewish children were hidden in the chateau. And one of the children who was hidden there, Giselle Feldman, she talks about who might have helped her, but she doesn't name them. And so I decided that this was best if I just made a heroine that sort of encompassed all of the heroics that were happening during this time. And that's when I came up with Marta. And I am probably butchering her name. There's a very nice French way of pronouncing it, but I can't make my throat make that sound. So we're going to have to just go with Marta. <laughs> but Marta is an orphan who was raised by Beatrice and others at the Chateau and grows up to be a school teacher who really wants out of this castle. She doesn't care anything about the Lafayette legacy. She doesn't care about anything about this castle. She just wants to move to New York and live her life. But unfortunately, the Nazis invade France and then she's faced with some real difficult choices about how she's going to react. And she ends up learning to love and respect the women who came before her there, including Adrian and Beatrice. Who owns the, la- the castle today? The castle is now owned by the French government and it is a museum. Oh, great. So, yeah, I wasn't quite sure if, you, if it was still open for people to visit. Yes, it is. And I had the chance to visit in 2017 and it was just a really remarkable trip. Fantastic. So have you been pleased with the reception the book has got so far? I am. Occasionally I'll see a review that somebody might say like, wait a minute, there were two world wars and they were both in France and Germany was involved in both of them. And I I get a little, you know, stressed out when I see reviews like that. (laughs) But, But for the most part, people have just been so warm and wonderful. And I, I really appreciate all the readers who have bought the book and told their book clubs about it or have invited me to visit their book clubs. It's just been great. I think one of the things about the story, I mean, I know that you're very particular about your historical research and there's a huge amount of detailed research that backs the book in terms of the fact, but a lot of the things that happened were so amazing that you keep on thinking of that saying that sometimes fact is stranger than fiction, don't you? Because there were some remarkable things that happened to all of these people. Oh my God, yes. I mean, I couldn't believe that there are secret tunnels in the castle that people were escaping from and children were hiding and that was real and like hidden they had to hide George Washington's dueling pistols from the Nazis these kind of things if you tried to make this up as a writer you'd be laughed out of town but these are real things that happened and there's a little story about those secret tunnels when I went to France in 2017 I asked about the tunnels And I don't know if there was sort of like a language barrier there or what the problem was, but they were not able to show me any tunnels. And we sort of wandered around looking for what might have been. 
Well, when I got back to the United States, I went to the New York Historical Society to look through Beatrice Chandler's papers. And that's where I found pictures of the secret tunnels at the castle that she had helpfully labeled, you know, secret tunnels. And so (laughs) Beatrice was not going to let this little detail get away from me. And so I'm, again, quite grateful. She's like a little writing genie on my shoulder. That's lovely. Look, you mentioned that before you got into this remarkably um, fertile period of American early history that you were writing way, way back in the time of Cleopatra. Tell us a little bit about your career in the early days, even before you got into writing fiction. How long did it take you to decide that being a writer was your calling? Well, I wanted to be a writer when I was a young person, but my mother very wisely told me that it would be hard to make a living doing this. And so I became a lawyer for about 10 minutes before before I decided that was not for me. And I embarked on a writing career. And it took at least a decade before I had a professional sale. Uh, And I was very down uh, about it, very discouraged. But now, of course, I see all that time as really well spent in terms of learning my craft. But I will say that early on, when I got married, on my honeymoon, I was going through the airport and I picked up a book by Margaret George called The Memoirs of Cleopatra. And I became obsessed with this book to the point where poor Mr. Dre was quite put out. It was our honeymoon and he really wanted me to stop reading all the time. (laughs) (laughs) But this book, when I got to the end, I learned that Cleopatra had a daughter and that she had been a real queen in the ancient world. And her story is not tragic in the way that Cleopatra's is. She, um, you know how sometimes they say well-behaved women don't make history? Well, she was well-behaved, but she was also very successful. And I wanted to celebrate that. So I started writing Lily of the Nile, which was, it's a bit of a historical fantasy book, actually. There's some magical realism elements to it. And I ended up writing a series. So there's Lily of the Nile, Song of the Nile, and Daughters of the Nile. And that took up a a good point, a good part of my early career. I loved those books and I was very happy about that. But then I met Laura Kamoy and the rest, they say, is history. (laughs) Yes, yes. When I interviewed Laura, we went into how that collaboration came about. So I'll refer to that in the show notes and people can listen to the interview with Laura to hear more about that. Looking back over your professional life, your writing life, is there anything you'd change with the benefit of hindsight? It's a really good question. I mean, I don't want to be trite and say, well, you know, every decision I made brought me to where I am today, even though that's all true. And so you can't be sorry for mistakes that you made. But I think early in my career, I didn't think enough about the market, what the market would bear. I didn't know enough. Now I have more of a sense of whenever I want to write a book for publication, I have to find something that I love, that I am obsessed with, that also is marketable. And those are two different things. So you have to sort of find if there's an overlap in those. I probably spent, you know, way too much time writing long. Oh, yes, here's a good one. I have, I write a a lot of long books. And I am now realizing that you really get paid the same amount, no matter how long the book is. So (laughs) (laughs) I would like to write shorter books. 
I have learned that I must write shorter books. Yeah, that's a very practical one. I mean, the romance writers who do so well with their indie publishing, they're often quite short books and they turn out a lot of them a year. Yes, yes. <laughs> Look, this is the joys of binge reading and we're starting to run out of time together. So turning to Stephanie as a reader, I mean, the sorts of books that you write aren't, well, they can be binge books actually because once you start into them, they're incredibly compelling. You want to keep on burning the midnight oil to finish them, but they are big books. Are you a binge reader yourself and who do you like to read just generally? So I have so many books that I love to read that I'm just going to name the first ones that come to mind. Sure. I'm a big fan of Ken Follett's books, like Pillars of the Earth and and all of the, actually all of those giant trilogies. So you can see that my tastes do run long. I also am a huge fan of my very dear friend, Kate Quinn. I just read The Rose Code, which I thought was amazing. I do read a lot of historical fiction, so I probably won't even, the only non-historical fiction I can name at the moment is Frederick Backman. I remember uh, A Man Called Uva Made Me Howl. And more recently, I read Anxious People, which was also really bizarre and funny. I've seen one that you've recommended online recently, which is very much in line with what you were talking about, your historical fiction. But The Invisible Woman, that that was also, I've just finished listening to that in Audible, actually, really as a result of seeing your recommendation of it. That, that was another wonderful Second World War story, wasn't oh, it? Oh, I'm so glad that you enjoyed it. I really just adore Erica. Yeah, yeah. She was new to me, actually. So that was lovely. Yeah. Tell us what you're working on now, the next 12 months or so. You've got another fantastic project going with another forgotten woman, haven't you? Oh, my gosh. Yes, I do. I am writing now about Frances Perkins, who is the most important woman in American history. And I don't say that lightly, but my gosh. she was. Yes. <laughs> Frances Perkins was America's very first female cabinet secretary. But that is actually not why she was the most important American in history. (laughs) She is really the architect of the New Deal. So she's FDR's right-hand woman. And she also fought a sort of lonely battle to save Jewish refugees during the Holocaust. And this is after she had an enormously accomplished life as a social worker and industrial risk assessor. Every time you look up and you see in America that we have sprinkler systems and fire exits and all sorts of safety regulations. Those all came out of Frances Perkins's work. And I'm just delighted by her. She is unlike any heroine I've written before because she has so much agency. She makes things so. She doesn't really have to have a man that she's doing things for unless you count the president. Yeah, that's a very big call to say the most important woman in American history. I mean, two two presidents' wives immediately come to mind, Eleanor Roosevelt and Jackie Kennedy. So, of course, they've both got plenty of pre-fame, but we'll be interested to hear what Francis, how Francis can rival them. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I adore both of them. I would never uh, say anything against Jackie Kennedy or Eleanor Roosevelt, but Francis, I think, eclipsed both of them in terms of raw accomplishment and the fact that there is no American alive today whose life she isn't impacting. Yeah, that's fantastic. Look, Stephanie, we are coming to the end of our time together. I know that you must, in this year of pandemic, 
have had to resort to talking a lot online, even if you didn't before. So tell us, where can readers find you online and what's the best way for them to proceed to reach out? I am all over social media. Please keep in touch with me on Facebook or on Instagram, or you can visit my website at stephaniedray.com. I have all kinds of extra research material and also... I have a great historical book of the month club where I give away free books all the time. So please do join that monthly newsletter. That's fantastic. We'll have all of the links to those connections in the show notes for this episode. So they'll be there forever more as evergreen content online, which is fantastic. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.